Chapter Two of the Lady's Mile. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elsie Selwyn. The Lady's Mile by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Two. Lord Aspendell's Daughter. When the brilliant stream of carriages had poured out of Aspley Gate when the serpentine blushed redly in the low western sunlight, when the fashionable world had gone homeward in baroches and landaus, britzkas and phaetons, to dash through the dusky park two hours hence in tiny miniature broughams, with lamps that flashed like meteors through the night, when a solemn twilight calm had come down upon the dusky greensward, and the tinkling of a sheep-bell made a rustic sound in the stillness, when a town-bred grey might have sat beside the placid water meditating an elegy in a west end park a lumbering old chariot was very often to be seen creeping up and down the lady's mile it was a shabby old carriage with a ponderous drab hammer-cloth which the moths had eaten away in bare patches here and there a faded old carriage which might have been bright and splendid long ago when lovely margaret countess of blessington was to be seen in the lady's mile and genial lord palmerston was called cupid but now in the still gloaming this dismal equipage might have been mistaken for some phantom chariot haunting the scene of departed glories the pale face looking out at the window would have assisted the delusion so lifeless was its changeless calm a beautiful melancholy patrician face you might have fancied you beheld the unreal image of a forgotten bell a ghost of beauty gliding in her shadowy chariot beneath the spreading branches which had looked down upon her triumphs years and years ago you might have thought this if you were prone to sentimental musings in the tender twilight but if you were a sober practical person you would most likely have found out who the lady was and all about her she was lady cecile chudley orphan daughter of lord aspendell and she was the unpaid companion the unrecompensed dependent upon the elderly dowager to whom the phantom chariot belonged and who sat far back in the vehicle while her beautiful niece looked sadly out upon the rosy bosom of the serpentine in all the world lady cecile had no other friend or protector than the dowager who was the widow of an anglo-indian general and only surviving sister of the dead countess of aspendell the anglo-indian warrior had distinguished himself at more places ending with poor and bad than can be numerated without weariness had lived a life of reckless and barbaric extravagance in despite of all feminine remonstrance and had died leaving his widow very little except his pension and a house full of indian shawls embroidered muslins sandalwood boxes beetle baskets and trypanopoly jewelry after the general's death mrs mcclaver house the warrior was of Scottish extraction and claimed kindred with the hero of Kilcranky. After her husband's death, the widow had sold the lease of the great house in Portland Place, in whose pillared dining room the general had been wont to entertain all the notabilities of the three presidencies, and beneath whose sheltering roof he had staggered half tipsy to bed every night for the last ten years of his life. She sold the lease and the furniture and the very curious old ports and constantias and madeiras 
but she kept all the bangles and sandalwood the beetles wings and the gorgeous scarves and shawls and table covers and a very nice little selection from the rare old wines and a small stock of the plate and glass and china and table linen which the magnificent general had chosen of such splendid quality and with these she retired to furnished apartments on the quietest side of dorset square she kept the chariot in which she had driven and visited for the last twenty years of her life and the fat grey horses that had drawn it but she sent the equipage to a livery stable in the neighbourhood of her new abode and she bargained with the proprietor for a sober coachman at five-and-twenty shillings a week a coachman who wore the stable-yard livery and was sometimes almost disreputable about the legs and feet and then one day she went down to brighton where the earl of aspendale and his only daughter had been living for the last ten years in a tiny cottage on the dyke road with a little grass plate before the windows and dimity curtains fluttering from the open casements so poor so friendless so dignified in their unpretending seclusion there was very little trouble connected with pecuniary misfortune which cecile chudley had not known the extravagance of a father's youth repented of too late the wild follies of a brother's mad career never repented of at all but caught suddenly short by a fatal false step on a frozen mountainside amidst the desolate grandeur of the alps a cheerless home a mother's slow decay half physical half mental and the weary task of beguiling the monotonous days of a ruined and remorseful spendthrift sorrows such as these had darkened the young life and hushed the silvery laugh and transformed the girl of seventeen into a woman drooping under the burden of a woman's heaviest cares it was only when the earl of aspendale and his folly were buried together in a corner of the little hillside churchyard where captain tattersail the loyal and phoebe hessel the daring sleep so quietly it was only when cecile was quite desolate and sat with the times newspaper in her lap staring hopelessly at the advertisements and wondering whether she was clever enough to be a governess it was then only that marian mcclaverhouse thought fit to trouble herself about the fate of her dead sister's only surviving child her brother-in-law's death happened fortunately as she said to herself in the brighton season and as she had no invitation for the current month mrs mcclaverhouse decided on paying a brief visit to brighton the widow was of a prudent turn of mind and contrived to save money out of her limited income for a rainy day she said she had been saving odd pounds and shillings and sixpences for this anticipated wet weather ever since her marriage and as yet jupiter pluvius had been pitiful and had restrained his fury she went to the little dyke road cottage to see cecile chudley to inspect her it may be said so sharply did she scrutinize so closely did she interrogate the girl but lady cecile's mind was too candid to shrink from questioning and she thought her aunt most nobly generous when that lady proposed to adopt her henceforth as companion reader amanuensis and prop and comfort to her declining years lady cecile certainly did not happen to know that the widow had been for some time on the lookout for a suitable person as companion and drudge and had only failed to suit herself because in her own words the impertinent creatures wanted such preposterous salaries and asked if i allowed port at luncheon as their physicians had ordered it their physicians indeed a dispensary surgeon or the parish apothecary i should think cried the widow impatiently for she was an energetic and plain-speaking person who was always proclaiming her want of 
common patience with the failings and follies of her fellow creatures. Lady Cecile went home with the dowager and ministered very patiently to her wants and pleasures, and read the newspapers to her and beat down the tradespeople and disputed about stray entries of mutton chops and half pounds of tea that had or had not been supplied, encountered the glass and was responsible for the spoons, and trembled when the widow's own parlour-maid chipped a morsel out of one of the general's tumblers, for was it not her duty to see that neither glass nor china was broken, and that the silver entree dishes, salvers, butter-boats, and tea-trays were rubbed with a hand only and not scratched and smudged with a greasy, gritty leather? Cecile's own pretty pink palms helped to clean the dowager's plate sometimes when there was a festival in Dorset Square. Mrs. McClaverhouse was very fond of society, and entertained innumerable elderly warriors and judges of the Sutter with their wives and daughters in her stuffy little dining-room. The splendid silver and glass were set forth, the rare old wines were brought out very often in the London season, and Lady Cecile bowed under the burden of a new kind of care, and went to sleep oppressed by the terror of a tablespoon missing from the plate-basket, or a butter-boat that had not been put away. Sometimes she felt a sick yearning for the old, monotonous days with her father, for when they were saddest there had been a tender quiet in their sadness. In the new life there might be no sorrow, but then there was such continual worry. The burdens laid upon her were very small ones, but then there were so many of them, and every day it seemed as if the last straw would be added to the heap, and she must sink down in the dust and die. The dowager was not unkind to her niece, for she was too much a woman of the world not to know when she had a good servant, and to rejoice in the fact that she possessed that treasure at the cheapest possible rate. She was not unkind, but she was pitiless. She called Cecile, "'My dear!' and bought her pretty dresses, pretty dresses that were to be had cheap after stock-taking at the West End haberdashes, dainty gauzes with the bloom off them, and muslins with soiled edges. She gave her good food and persuaded her to take half-glasses of tawny port, which the girl in her secret soul thought more nasty than physic. But if Lady Cecile had been dying, Mrs. McClaverhouse would have come to her deathbed to demand the inventory of the china, and to ask if it were six or eight shell-and-thread patterned salt-spoons that had been entrusted to the parlour-maid for the last dinner-party. For three years Lady Cecile had lived on the dullest side of Dorset Square, and counted the glasses and spoons, and battled with the Marlebone tradesmen, and ridden in the phantom chariot, and all those three years there had been only one break in the drudgery of her life, only one glimpse of sunshine, but then it was such a dazzling burst of light, such a revelation of paradise. Ah, let my pen fall lightly on the paper as I write the story of that tender dream. It was the habit of Mrs. McClaverhouse to spend as much of her time in visiting as was thoroughly agreeable to her acquaintance. She liked visiting because it was pleasant and cheap, but she was too wise a woman to wear out her welcome, and no one had ever uttered the obnoxious word, sponge, in conjunction with her name. She was lively and agreeable, rather vulgar perhaps, but then genteel people are permitted to be vulgar, clever, well-dressed, of high family and acknowledged position, and she gave cosy little dinners in the season. So there were many houses in which she and her niece were favorite guests in the cheery winter days, when an old country house is such a paradise. Poor Cecile found herself sometimes looking anxiously after other people's spoons and forks in these pleasant holiday times, or taking a mental photograph of a cold sirloin, or a raised pie as it was removed from the breakfast table, 
for one of her home duties was to register the appearances of joints and poultry before they descended into the territory of the landlady who might or might not be honest mrs mcclaverhouse made a point of never quite believing in people's honesty don't tell me that i have known them for years and never known them to rob me exclaimed the widow they may have robbed me without me knowing it or they may not have robbed me because i never gave them the opportunity and they may begin to rob me to-morrow if they get the chance look at the bishop of northlandshire's butler who had lived with him thirteen years and ran away with five hundred pounds worth of plate in the fourteenth look at sir harry hincliffe's valet who was such a faithful creature that his master left him an annuity of two hundred a year which he would have enjoyed very much no doubt if he hadn't stripped the house while his benefactor's corpse was lying in it and had not been transported for life in consequence don't talk to me about honesty cecile if mrs creason is an honest woman why do her eyes sparkle so when i order a large joint and why are two quarts of bisque barely enough for six in the autumn mrs mcclaverhouse generally retired to some marine retreat unfrequented by cockneys or fashionables where lodgings were to be had on reasonable terms and where she could recruit herself and her niece for the winter campaign i really don't see why you shouldn't marry well cecile though heaven knows what will become of the general's diamond-cut glass when you leave me and i sometimes wonder how it is you haven't made a good match before now said the widow i think it's that cold manner of yours that keeps the men off and then you don't talk slang as some of the women do nowadays you're not dashing you know my love but you are very handsome and elegant and accomplished and if any one of those flippant minxes can sing rosini's music or write an inventory of china as well as you i'll eat her pearl powder and all added mrs mack with a wry face it was very true that as yet no pretender of any importance had appeared for lady cecile chudley's hand it might be that lovers were kept off by the cold reserve of her manners the shrinking dislike to take any prominent part in society which is apt to affect those whom poverty has always kept more or less at a disadvantage or it might be in consequence of that panic in the matrimonial market of which we have heard so much in these latter days the dowager had been quite sincere when she spoke of her niece's beauty there were few handsomer faces to be seen in the lady's mile than that which looked wistfully out of the phantom chariot it was a pale face pale with no muddled sickly whiteness or bilious yellow but that beautiful pallor which is so rare a charm a pensive patrician face with a slender aquiline nose and dark hazel eyes people liked to see lady cecile in their rooms even when she wore her plainest white muslin and kept herself most persistently in a shadowy corner so unmistakable was her rank and breeding young men who complained that she had so little to say for herself and lamented the absence of a mysterious quality called go in her manners confessed that her profile was more beautiful than the finest cameo in the louvre and her style unexceptionable if polygamy were admissible i'd marry lady cecile to-morrow remarked a gentleman of the genus swell she is a woman of women to sit at the head of a fellow's table and do him credit in society but if i were going home half seas over after a four-in-hand club dinner at richmond i'd as soon have lady macbeth sitting up for me as lord aspendale's daughter not that she'd be coarse or low like the scotch woman you know not a bit of it she'd receive me with a stately curtsy and freeze me to death with her classic profile ye gad when you come to think of it you know old fellow there must be a hitch somewhere in the matrimonial law society doesn't confine a man to one horse 
society doesn't compel him to ride his park hack across country or harness racing stud to his drag and yet society limits an unhappy beast to one wife and if he marries a nice little indulgent creature who won't look black at him when he comes home late or smokes in the dining room the odds are that she'll freeze his marrow by dropping her h's and talking of her par who was something in the soap boiling way at an archbishop's state dinner in the second autumn of lady cecile's dependence the dowager carried her niece and her parlour-maid to a pretty little village on the hampshire coast a sleepy little village where the fruit was blown off the trees and farmers orchards by the fresh breath of ocean breezes a village nestling under the shadow of brown sunburnt hills a long straggling street of rustic cottage with here and there a quaint old gabled dwelling-place of a better class shut in by moss-grown walls and nestling in such gardens as are to be seen on that southwestern coast very few cockney visitors ever invaded the drowsy hamlet of fortinbras where the watering-place habitué would have looked in vain for the cliffs or the jetty the brazen band and the buff slippers the ethiopian serenaders and the wheel of fortune so dear to his cockney soul at fortinbras there were only two bathing machines and the sole attraction which the place possessed for sightseers was a grand old norman castle whose mighty keep towered high above the farmyards and orchards and within whose walls red-shirted cricketers met on sunny summer afternoons and whither village sunday school children came now and then to feast on buns and tea the coast of fortinbras was low and flat and weedy and sometimes a faint odour of stale seaweed floated up from the shining sands on the evening air your cockney would have fled aghast from the place as an elfy but for lady cecile the rustic village and the weedy coast had an odour of longfellow and tennyson that was delicious to her soul and she felt as if she would have been unutterably happy if she could have bidden an eternal farewell to dorset square and mrs mcclaverhouse's plate chest and china closet to take up her abode under the shelter of the norman castle and the grassy hills for the rest of her life she wandered alone on the wet sands while her aunt took an afternoon dinner nap on the first evening of their arrival she lingered by the cool grey sea and watched the changing glories of the low western sky in a kind of rapture and there are people who like dorset square better than this she thought oh dear dear lonely place how i love you was it only a sensuous delight in the beautiful sky the cool breezy atmosphere the rustic calm or was it because the happiest days of her life were to be spent on this weedy shore if a coming sorrow casts its ominous shadow on the foredoomed creature who is to suffer it should no prophetic sunshine herald the coming of joy lady cecile was happier that august evening than she ever remembered having been in her life and there was a faint bloom on her cheeks like the pinky heart of a wild rose when she went home to the pretty cottage half grange half villa which mrs mcclaverson had hired for the season for a mere song my dear and a duck for which that extortionate jiffles would have had the audacity to charge me four shillings i get here for half a crown wrote the dowager to a friend and confidant cecile found her aunt in very high spirits you've heard me talk a good deal of my husband's nephew hector gordon the only son of andrew gordon the great contractor yes i know that a person who contracts seems something horrible vulgar and that's what margaret mcclaverhouse's grand friend said when she married her but andrew gordon was as polished a gentleman as ever sat in parliament and he did sit there my dear and he does this day and scotchmen whose pride has a good deal that's noble in it 
don't think it a more degrading thing to make money honestly by straightforward commerce than to get rich by time bargains and rigging the market i know there are people to this day who are inclined to look down upon hector and when he joined the eleventh there was one man a freckled flaxen-haired creature with weak eyes whose father was a money-lending attorney who tried to get up a laugh against our boy by asking some questions about andrew's business transactions i don't know what hector said or did cecile but i know the young man never tried to sneer at him again and sold out shortly afterwards because his sight was too weak for india you've heard me talk about the boy till you were almost tired of his name i dare say my dear cecile smiled she was thinking how many of mrs mcclaverhouse's pet subjects she had grown weary of within the two years of her slavery and that this womanly talk of the favorite nephew was the least obnoxious of them it's only natural that you should be fond of him she said you'd have some reason to say so cecile if you'd known him when he was four years old answered her aunt at four i think he was the loveliest child that ever was created such blue eyes not your wishy-washy milk-and-water color that some parents call blue but as deep and dark as that purple convolvus and the vase yonder and then the widow went on to relate to cecile the very familiar legend of how poor margaret went off into a consumption soon after the infant's birth and how she being alone in england at the time took up her abode in andrew gordon's house to superintend the reign of the child which saved my expenses elsewhere and was doing a favor to the poor helpless widower said mrs mcclaverhouse parenthetically and then you know my dear the general being particularly fond of children like most people who have none of their own took a tremendous fancy to his poor sister's child so nothing would do but that the boy must be continually in portland place whenever his uncle was in england and i'm sure i wonder that darling child's constitution was not completely ruined by the mangoes and chutney and raging hot curries the general allowed him to eat and when hector was at oxford and my husband had settled down after the last afghan war it was just the same i think the young man spent as much of his time in portland place as at the university and it was the general who put a military career into his head much to his father's annoyance for andrew would have liked him to go into the house and preach about poor laws and national surveys and main drainage and such like however whatever hector wished was sure to be done sooner or later for i do believe there never was a young man so completely spoiled by everybody belonging to him and the end of it was that his father bought him a commission in the eleventh plungers as you know yes the story was a very old one for cecile she had listened with unfailing patience to her aunt's prosy discourses about hector gordon and as the dowager was generally in a good temper when she talked of him her niece had no unpleasant association with his name but familiar as his graces and merits had become to her through the praises of his aunt cecile felt no special interest in the young captain she knew that he had been a good son and a brave soldier but then there are so many good sons and brave soldiers in the world she knew that he had distinguished himself in india by doing something desperate in connection with a fort but then young men in india are always doing desperate things in connection with forts if ever any image of hector gordon presented itself to lady cecile's imagination it took the shape of a clumsy scotchman with high cheekbones and sandy hair mrs mcclaverhouse called his hair auburn but then that word auburn has such a wide signification cecile listened to the old old story of hector's childhood to-night as patiently as she had been wont to listen any time within the last two years but even calm, queenly Lady Cecile Chudley was a little startled when the dowager exclaimed, "'And now, my dear, I'm going to surprise you. Hector Gordon will be here to breakfast with us tomorrow morning.' "'Auntie!' 
he will arrive with the london papers that quarter before twelve o'clock we must have fried soles mutton cutlets and worcester sauce and potted game and all those coarse high-seasoned things that men like and you can put a little fruit on the table to make it look pretty which of course will do for dessert afterwards and you will have to give out the tea and coffee service and half a dozen large forks i only hope and pray the servants here are honest if it wasn't for that tiresome lie and prancing upon every atom of silver one might persuade servants and people that it was all electric but auntie said cecile heedless of the housekeeping details i thought captain gordon was in india and so did i my dear but it seems he has come home on sick leave not ill he tells me but only knocked up by climate and hard work and he went to dorset square yesterday morning unannounced on purpose to surprise me the consequence of which was that he found me out of the way as people generally do when they plan these romantic surprises and he has brought me an indian shawl because i am so fond of indian shawls he says that's always the way with people if they see you are suffering from a plethora of any kind of property they take it into their heads that you have a passion for that especial class of property property and rush to buy you more of it i have no common patience with such folly perhaps mrs mcclaverson said this because it was her habit to be sharp and unsparing and she found herself too much inclined to melt into weak motherly tenderness when she spoke of her nephew now the hero of all the old nursery and schoolboy stories was so near at hand cecile chudley began to think of him a little more seriously than ever she had done before he was weak and ill no doubt his aunt said in spite of his assurances to the contrary and in that case he must be kept in the sleepy hampshire village and nursed till he was strong again and you must help to nurse him cecile said the widow and if by any chance he should happen to fall in love with you be sure you remember that he's a better match than one out of fifty of the young men you meet in london and heaven knows they are scarce enough nowadays if you weren't my sister's own child i wouldn't throw you in his way for hector might marry any woman in england but at the worst it would sound well for his wife's name to have a handle to it lady cecile's face was dyed with a hot indignant blush i am not the sort of person to be fascinated by captain gordon's money aunt mcclaverson she said perhaps not answered the old lady coolly but you may fall in love with him Cecilia was too angry to answer that the dowagers should talk coolly of hector gordon the contractor's son as a great catch for the descendant of aspendells and chudleys who had helped to vanquish his countrymen at flodden stung the earl's daughter to the very heart she had so little but her grand old lineage left to her that it was scarcely strange she should be proud of it there came a time not many weeks after this august evening when she looked back thought what a delicious thing it must have been to have her name coupled with his and to be ignorant that there was any wrong in the association but to-night she was wounded and indignant and though she went out into the kitchen premises by and by to give orders about the cutlets and the soles and the potted meats for the plunger captain's breakfast her heart was not in the duty and she sent none of those little messages to the butcherwoman which a woman would have done who loved the coming cutlet consumer she thought how unpleasant it would be to have a clumsy scottish invalid lying on the sofa in the cosy little drawing-room where she had hoped to read tennyson and owen meredith all by herself in the warm drowsy afternoons and the time came and so soon when no sofa that gillow could devise would have seemed soft enough for so dear a visitor when every glimmer of sunshine or breath of summer air in that cosy drawing-room was watched and calculated as closely as if a valuable life had depended upon the adjustment of the venetians or the opening and shutting of the french windows lady cecile went out upon the seashore after an early cup of tea on the morning that was to witness hector gordon's arrival 
she had arranged a pile of dewy plums nestling in their dark green leaves in a basket of hot-house grapes with her own hands for she had the magical touch whereby some women can impart beauty to common things she had surveyed the breakfast-table and had given orders as to the moment at which the tea and coffee were to be made and the fish put into the frying-pan and she left a message for her aunt to the effect that she was gone for a long walk and would not be home to breakfast it would be so much better she fancied to leave the widow and her nephew tete-a-tete -tete on this forced morning of the soldier's arrival she had done her duty conscientiously and having done it she went out to breathe the sweet morning air and shake off the unpleasant idea of the coming scotchman i have been tolerably comfortable with my aunt so far she thought in spite of the spoons and forks but now i shall only interfere with her enjoyment of this dreadful scotchman's society oh papa papa how i miss you and the dreary little house on the dyke road where we live so peacefully together with all the winds of heaven howling round us and rattling in our windows in the dead of night she went under the ponderous archway beneath which a portcullis still hung and into the grassy enclosure which had once been the muster-ground of the castle at this early hour there was neither sunday-school children nor exploring visitors among the old grey ruins the fresh sea-breezes fluttered the little plume in lady cecile's hat and blew all thoughts of vexation out of her mind she mounted the winding stair of the keep a dangerous treacherous stair which had been worn by the tread of mailed feet in the days that were gone and the buff boots of excursionists from the isle of wight in this present age she went to the very top of the great norman tower high up above all grievances about hector gordon and his breakfast and emerged upon the battlements a fragile fluttering little figure amid that massive medieval stonework whose grey ruin was grander than the most elaborate glories of modern architecture she heard the whistle of the engine as she entered the castle and she imagined that at this moment hector gordon must be installed at the breakfast-table devouring chops she thought with a contemptuous little grimace it is so natural for a girl of nineteen to think meanly of a man who is below her in social status to think philip foley painting in his hybern lodging and dressed in a threadbare shooting jacket lady cecile chudley would have been unspeakably gracious but for a scion of the caledonian plutocracy she had nothing but good-natured contempt he is an invalid poor fellow she thought i am sure it is very wicked of me to think his visit a bore she settled matters with her conscience by determining to be very attentive to the physical comforts of her aunt's favourite i dare say he would like some salmon for dinner she thought i'll call at the fishmonger's as i go home and then she took a volume of victor hugo's poetry from her pocket and began to read the noble verse carried her aloft on its mighty pinions high up into some mystic region a million miles above the battlements of the norman tower she had an idea that she could not leave her aunt and captain gordon too long undisturbed on this particular morning and she abandoned herself altogether to the delight of her book it was so seldom that she was able to entirely forget that there were such things as silver forks and dishonest servants in the world even to-day she was not allowed to be long unconscious of the outer world for when she had been reading in about twenty minutes she heard a voice close beside her exclaim i am so glad you like victor hugo pray forgive me for being so impertinent as to look over your shoulder but i have been searching for you everywhere and i am to take you home to breakfast please if you are lady cecile chudley and i am almost sure you are she started to her feet and looked at the speaker he was the handsomest man she had ever seen tall and grand and fair 
the very type of a classic hero she fancied as he stood before her on the battlements with the winds lifting the short auburn curls from his bare forehead he was no more like the traditional scotchman than the duc de Almalay is like one of gilroy's frenchmen there was no more odour of the parvenu about him than about a bayard or a napier in all her life she had never seen any one like him it was not because he was handsome that she was struck by his appearance for she had generally hated handsome men as the most obnoxious of their species it was because he was himself for once in her life lord aspendale's daughter whose calm reserve was so near akin to hauteur was fairly startled are you really captain gordon she asked amazed i am indeed and that question tells me that i was right and you are lady cecile and we are at least we ought to be cousins since dear aunt mcclaverhouse stands in the same relation to both of us End of chapter 2